Consummate athletes seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, and Happy New Year. We are here. It is 2021. Yeah, it's going to take a while to get used to saying 2021. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes the years, you know, they, they make sense and they flow off the tongue and other years they don't. So we'll see which which type of year this is. Well, what's important is that we're out of 2020. I suppose. And onward. And onward, indeed. So what have you been up to in these first few days to weeks of uh, 2021? Uh, well, you know me. I am a huge resolution goal setter <laughs> type person. So I've spent the last few days really, you know, doing a lot of, I'd say, journaling and sort of thinking through my plans for this coming year and what I hope to accomplish from, you know, both like the very micro like daily habits that I want to establish and kind of keep established, like the stuff I've done well, and then sort of just thinking through you know, some of the bigger goals and, you know, taking into account, I actually just did a kind of breakdown month by month of what I want to do in 2021 and sort of thinking through if a race happens, I want to do this, but if the race doesn't happen, I want to do this. Right. So like if then statements. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I saw your list of months and I was like, I don't know if I could uh, hash that out. That seems overwhelming to me. Oh, that, that makes it less overwhelming once it's sort of all there and, I don't know, sorted through. It's well, are these for all aspects of, of your life? Yeah, I guess well, our life as well. Yeah, yeah your what life a, What too. am I signed up for this year? Yeah, uh, quite a few things, actually. Right, okay. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I am a huge believer in the just the whole you can't really just focus on one aspect of your life without thinking through what it's going to look like for all the other aspects. So. Right if all I did was write down my sport goals for the season, that would completely ignore what I haven't, you know, what I have planned for shred girls and what we have planned for the consummate athlete and all that stuff. So I think as I break down the months and sort of put my like big couple of goals for each month or each quarter or, you know, however I have it broken down, uh, it helps to be thinking sort of holistically about life. And, and we talk about that in the book, actually about the planning your, your season or your year we have actually this breakdown of the month by month where it's like, you know, you're writing down like vacation with family, like work conference, all of those things and making sure that you don't have an Ironman planned for the week yeah. after a, you know, week long work conference. Trying to periodize, periodize or, or use blocks, right? To set up life really, right? And, and sometimes the months are convenient blocks and sometimes they're not, you know, it's not always that clean. It's not always beautiful for four week blocks with a nice recovery week. Here, it might be a hustle month and then a, a recovery month, a vacation month. Literally have hustle and recovery as two of the months. Okay. I also like, everyone knows I love the one word resolutions for my whole year. I also break down the months by one word, like goals, so. Right, right. And this is sort of like a mission statement uh, or, or intention, I guess you're fond of. Exactly, yeah. Right. I'm a big planner. But I, don't, I don't know if I have a word for, for this year. Maybe I'll have to ponder that. I'm going to give myself credit. I do spend a lot of time on this stuff and it's a little, it feels a little eye rolly while I'm doing it. But honestly, I think I've actually achieved most of the things that I've like written down over the years. Hmm. Well, this idea of planning and, and big adventures and things on the calendar, it sort of relates to today's guest. This is a guest we interviewed towards the end of last year, but we held on because 
his adventures and his 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 mission statement i think is very good for the new year and as we we set our intentions towards big adventures uh ray zahab is certainly no stranger to big adventures and exploration and pushing limits um so we're very happy to have him on we were connected through uh, a friend in ottawa he's from ottawa ontario but uh, is someone who I followed now for several years. Actually, some another friend many years ago uh, had connected me to his books and and just great books to read if you're looking for you know stories of doing more and pushing your mental limits. Uh, but yeah, we were really happy to have him on to discuss sort of how these big explorations come together. You know, pushing again those mental limits. We talked about he's been doing this. Uh, video conferencing with with students with teachers with with school programs and sort of connecting all these different aspects of the exploration and planning uh, and the different cultures uh, into classrooms right so he's been doing this zoom classroom stuff for quite some time yeah and i think what i really liked talking to him you know this year in particular is because he's you know so much of his stuff is guiding and going on these big adventures you know, you really could have seen 2020 like taking a huge toll on him and his business. And, you know, really, he could have been pretty down in the dumps about it. But honestly, he was super positive. He sort of, you know, figured out ways to make make stuff go or make stuff work in 2020. And I thought it was pretty impressive. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talk about his training as well. Um, and I think what, what stuck out for me was that so much of the training, I think, is experience um, from past expeditions and then also the mental side of it is is definitely very important um, but we do talk about how he gets ready for these these things and a lot of it to me is he sounds like a consummate athlete he stays healthy and you know does a variety of things he spends a lot of time on feet and a lot of time going up that I was, thought that yeah. was one of the most interesting things is his uh his weekly mileage itself isn't really that i mean it's it's high like let's be honest but it's not shockingly high what's what's actually like what he focuses on is vertical at this point. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And, and you see that in a few different methodologies as well. Um, I think with the Alpine world and different expeditions. So, But I think you're seeing that creep into more and more uh, like ultra programs now too for running. And cycling too. There were a lot of like Strava by the numbers things I've seen in the last like month as everyone's sort of posting their end of year stats. Mm-hmm. And I thought what was interesting is a lot more people commenting on the like feet or meters climbed rather than just looking at the mileage number. Well, I guess in the year of Everesting, that is True. what you would comment on. Well, it's maybe fu- that's the plus of Everesting. Like, well, and we noticed this too, right? It's it's sometimes you see people have like these huge distances, but you know their time might not be. You know, I'm sure it's high, but it's not you know that high. But they've ridden a lot of ro- flat road, right? And so their distance is high. But then you might see someone else who's actually you know their distance is actually sort of low but they've ridden for a long time and their elevation is very high right so it sort of depends what type of athlete you're trying to turn into um you know your mountain bikers i always check like how much are we actually off-road and how much are we climbing are sort of my two quick metrics so it's definitely making sure you're managing the things you want to manage right the things that matter and uh, for ray i guess this is one of the things that he manages is this elevation gain yeah exactly Cool. Well, let's let's maybe dive in and let Ray explain that. So enjoy this episode with Ray Zahab. All right. We're very excited to welcome Ray Zahab to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I think if there's one athlete, you know, this is a gentleman who's been on my list for over 10 years, not necessarily on the list to be on the podcast, but because we didn't have it 10 years ago, but on my list, at least for five. Uh, Ray, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much. That's it's actually it's funny that you said that. Like you know, that many years and not necessarily on the podcast, but it's amazing how podcasts have taken off. It is wild. And thing now, you yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Because it, it's funny. People used to sit around the radio in like the nineteen forties and fifties or whatever, <laughs> right? And then now it things have like sort of come full circle. And podcasts are a way that so many people get information or share conversations. There's a couple of podcasts that I listen to uh, pretty routinely. And um, I, I just find it very interesting that I used to find myself listening to music occasionally when I was on the trails running. And now I listen to podcasts or talk radio or whatever, you know? Mm. I genuinely don't think I'd be into endurance running if it wasn't for podcasts, because I don't think I'd have enough attention span to just listen to music on the trails anymore. Like, I need yeah. the podcasts going for long it's runs. It's interesting, eh? I mean, you know, and it's not just listening to endurance stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like all kinds of stuff that I listen to, too. Yeah, you know? yeah I think it's and almost yeah. better to, to divert the mind in a yeah. lot of cases. Right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what does someone, you know, we race a little bit. We do, you know, smaller adventures, I would say, you know, day long. We do things like, uh, you know, the Killarney Trail in, uh, you know, I guess in Killarney. I was going to say in Algonquin, but that's not true. Um, but like an 80K trail run type thing. So, you know, big, but not on the scan, scale of big that you do as far as traveling and then the multi-days. Like what, what, do, what are you doing in the pandemic? Well, you know, it's interesting. Again, you know, it's relative, right? It's all relative to what we're doing at the moment. And I find that any adventure that I've been on, any expedition, I now I think I'm at 17,000 plus kilometers that I've covered on foot in the coldest and hottest places in the world. I mean, it's it's, but anything that I do, it's it's uh, running across the Sahara Desert and reaching the Red Sea. The same feelings and emotion that I had in doing that is very similar. Um, to how I felt the very first time that I accomplished my first 5K training run, right? It's very relative to where we're at and what it is that we're doing. Now, what am I doing during the pandemic? Well, again, it's relative. <laughs> you know, we're in a pandemic, so I'm not traveling. And, it, and last year, I probably had my busiest year that I've had. That is guiding clients with my uh, company, Capic One, being on my own expeditions, traveling around the world, speaking and stuff like that. And then uh, the expeditions of our foundation, Impossible to Possible, and doing projects with Impossible to Possible, all the youth-based stuff. And then come to a screeching halt in Feb February, late February. I was actually just talking to one of my clients today who was with me in Siberia at the end of February, an American guy. And he was saying to me, wow, can you believe where things have gone since the end of February, I mean, to where we are now, sort of coming out, starting to come out the other end of this. And he said, this was the first time we had to catch up. And he said, so how has it been? And I said, well, I started going across the list of all the things that we've been doing. Well, you know, there's the four of us, our family, my wife and I, and, and our two daughters, we've been trail running a ton and they, they run a lot. My girls run, ski, paddle, they do all those sports. So we're doing all this stuff. We've been developing the coffee with the guiding company. We're planning our trips for next year. Da, 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 da. And I realized when we started this conversation, the amount of stuff that was different stuff that I would normally do in a year that I've actually been able to get done during the pandemic. So I guess a long answer to, to your question 
it's it's an interesting thing where expeditions teach and adventure teaches us resiliency and it teaches us to uh, reinvent situations that we're in, right? And I think that it could have gone either way. I could have just sort of, you know, it, it slipped into a very, uh, you know, as would as would be easy to do, a dark place and and be depressed about where things are at and I'm not earning an income and all my businesses have shut down or you know, I could, well, this is the situation. And so what am I going to do to deal with it? And I think that that was sort of a big, it, not a shift, but something that just, it came about because I'm so used to doing the things that I do that I sort of, we slipped into this with the pandemic. We're lucky. We live in an outdoor, you know, place that we can do the things that we love to do. But I was able to work on so many other things during yeah. the pandemic. Because you could be forgiven, you know, you're you know, your time span sounds similar to mine as far as you've been doing this for, you know, 20 plus years, right? Like it's been a lot of years. Um, so you could be forgiven to just say, you know, this is a sign and you know, that's not what I'm doing anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think, you know, to be honest with you, that's not where my head, my, uh, where, where it would have sort of from an intuitive perspective gone, you know what I mean? Right away that, oh, okay, maybe I'm never going to be doing this. I, like, I wasn't even thinking in those terms. I'm talking about capacity to earn an income, right? Even like the most basic things. Right. Like basically being in a job and then being out of a job, you know? And then all the other things that many people have had to deal with and many people have had to deal with and worse. Uh, but it wasn't, it didn't consume me. Rather than dwell on the potential that I may not have an income this year, I said, well, this is like, okay, so look at it's either is it an know, opportunity or you know it's well, a it's, challenge it, it, it's just you, it, either way <laughs> you know either way you're starting from zero you can start from zero and and not have you know not put an effort forward to do anything else and hope that things change or you could spend your time trying to do something and mm-hmm. that's that's sort of what I've decided to do and instead of taking the perspective well it'll never happen again i thought you know what it'll it'll happen when it happens you know and yeah. I had expeditions planned for this year that have all been canceled or postponed. Yeah, so, you were on you were in Baffin Island in January. Is that the, yeah, the last thing? I was on. I was. I was on. I I I ran from the kick from Kikik Tarjuak, the island across the frozen sea ice of sort of where the Davis Strait is. Yeah, that was half the journey, and then the other half was across Baffin Island. It struck me as I was sort of doing research, like you've done a lot on Baffin Island, like seven mm-hmm. or eight, if I'm not mistaken. Is that? Yeah, nine trips now, nine. believe it or not, okay. nine trips there. And it's just a place in various areas of the same place, yeah. you know? It's a lot. Why? Why? Why none of well, it? Well, it's, it's spectacular. <laughs> okay. For starters, the Canadian Arctic is spectacular. I've been all over the Canadian Arctic, but this area in particular, I have visited with frequency, you know? And there's something about it that is just astonishing and beautiful. And I can't wait to take our my, – my wife's been across Baffin with me as well, guiding with our foundation many years ago. But in winter, winter expeditions there are truly – it's a remarkable place. So I can't wait to bring my daughters when they're ready to ski across, which will happen once things open up, and then be out there and show them the immensity of the wilderness. You know, but it's an incredible place, and I have a lot of friends there, right? I have a lot of friends in the surrounding communities. It's very remote. <laughs> makes it sound like, well, let's just for you guys hop over to Blue Mountain, and then we'll come back in the afternoon. It's nothing like that. You, yeah. you know, you're you're out there on your own. No, none so. of it is a long ways away. Yeah, it's yeah, and it's massive area. Yeah, I was looking because I, I was familiar with Baffin Island. Like, I get it. Like Hudson's Bay, okay. Um, but I was like, I'm gonna just look at the map, and it's like 
<laughs> it's massive, number one, but it just blends in with everything else, right? I guess that's what you're saying with the ice and stuff, right? Versus the Nunavut, what I thought of as Nunavut. Well, Nunavut is very diverse topographically. It's very diverse place um, environmentally. Uh, you know, you have, uh, you, you know, tundra and mountains and, and ice and sometimes some permanent ice glaciers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously an incredibly vibrant uh, culture in indigenous Canadians, you know. And so there's just it's, – it's just an absolutely compelling and beautiful place mm. in every possible way. Now, some of these, you know, you've been, it struck me that a lot of the stuff you've been doing now for over 10 years with the school involvement, the impossible to possible um, projects, you know, you're ahead of the game as far as Zoom and this teleconferencing and <laughs> you were doing satellite stuff, you know, before it was cool. Uh, can you take us through just even a brief, you know, what is impossible to possible and what you're doing and have done with schools? Yeah, so we started Impossible to Possible conceptually in 2007 and then really formulated it in 2008. And the primary goal is to give young people an opportunity to go on expeditions. Now, the kids that go on expeditions are 16 to 21 years of age, young people. And um, they become I2P, Impossible to Possible for short, I2P Youth Ambassadors. And they go and explore a remote part of the world for a week to 10 days at a time, running most of the time, carrying their supplies most of the time. And then we combine that journey, that expedition with a relevant curriculum to the region that we're in. So for example, one that I always use because it's such an easy connect, we took a group of youth ambassadors through the central Amazon jungle. And I had infrastructure there, like uh, people I knew in the region uh, to help logistics. And our youth ambassadors trekked from one remote indigenous community to the next. And as they did, they reported back to roughly 30,000 students who followed online through a live website. They reported back, like I, I call them field reporters on what is biodiversity and teaching the concepts and theory, or like the, the lessons of biodiversity from this region of the planet that is so biodiverse. But we've been all over the world, Rajasthan, doing a youth expedition in the Thar Desert along the Pakistani border, learning about access to healthcare. We've done um, the rise of the dinosaurs in the remote Utah desert and digging for dinosaur bones with world-renowned paleontologists and finding dinosaur bones and it all unfolding live across our website using our satellite feed and everything else. So they're really, they're very robust expeditions, like educationally, and we've done 15 of them around the world so far. Yeah, and you're involving them in like different aspects, right? Like sometimes they're helping with logistics and different parts of the expedition. Is that that's true? I'm not misrepresenting yes. or yes. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. So when the youth ambassadors are at the let's say on a on a really big expedition, we did one to uh, you know the the mountains of Greece. I can't remember what the subject of that one was, but I think it might have been rise of civilization i don't know what it was maybe the rise of commerce i can't remember but at any rate you had you had five youth ambassadors and 15 faculty people creating content creating photographs teaching the youth ambassadors as they make their way right. professors engaging on the content and helping to build modules every day that would um round out the day-to-day -day curriculum right 
Right. So a very, a very, uh, it's called experiential learning basically. And mm-hmm. so it's a really, it's a new way of teaching subjects that could be drab and dry, but te- teaching them using adventure as the platform. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it makes so much sense. I think probably you and I, you know, and probably a lot of our listeners, it makes sense that you learn a lot of stuff. We talked about, you know, with the, in the pandemic, you know, self-discipline and, uh, you know, re-motivating and refocus, you know, all these things is so important. Um, like what, what put you onto that path as a guy who wanted to run across deserts? Like why, why start involving kids and schools in, in these well, things? Well, because, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, 16 years old, I really uh, didn't care too much about school, 15 years old. I mean, I was, you know, I don't even know how I graduated high school, to be perfectly honest with you. And, <laughs> I, you know, my life just basically spiraled into a train wreck after several years. I dropped out of community college and all that stuff. And I just thought, you know. And you know the whole – the stories of transformation, which I find in endurance sports, I find it super interesting that there's so many endurance athletes especially, but people in general that go through some sort of transformational phase in their life, right, where they change things around and they go after something a little bit different. And I, Most people know this, like that, that follow my stuff, that I was, a, I was an unhealthy person, pack-a-day, two-pack-a-day smoker. Not that uncommon, right? We all know those stories from when we were younger. But the fact that I was – I turned things around just simply because I wanted to live a life that was different from the one that I was living and in a different direction that potentially I could find some passion in and find things that I was, was compelled by in my life. And that led me across, you know, to start running and, and, and learning all these things about myself that when eventually I got across the Sahara desert, um, in doing that 111-day expedition across the Sahara, we, the three of us, learned about culture, economics, science, the water crisis, everything. And I thought, geez, I learned so much. I was so excited to learn. Running the Sahara and ultra running was teaching me that I actually love to learn, but in a different right. way, that in, from an experiential perspective. And that by traveling and immersing ourselves in the places that we go, um, and learning from others about different perspectives of the world and life in general, that there's so much we can take from that. And it's a very powerful learning tool. So that's when my wife and I and my best friend Bob decided to form this organization, Impossible to Possible, that would give kids an opportunity to do the things and learn the things that I did in running the Sahara, but also in every aspect of their own lives and in other expeditions around the world. So everything we do is hundred percent free. Like there's no cost for kids to go on these expeditions and for schools to participate. The entire program's free. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah. for, for schools who, you know, maybe can't quite get on, get onto that. You also have a, a book for kids out, uh, running to extremes. Well, that was, yeah, it was out, uh, in 11 years ago, I think now that book. Oh, okay. Came so that's why I'm saying, I mean, I'm working on my third book, right? But that book, yeah, definitely. That's It was geared towards young people. And I wanted them to do And it was like hugely popular among young people and in school libraries and all that, which made me really excited because it proved once again to me that adventure, if you make it accessible, is something that we can all learn from and be inspired by right and so i've had so many even just today on twitter a school tweeted out that they're 
doing some school projects and you know they're going to be doing some stuff on some of my expeditions that's awesome and so then i'll probably end up you know uh doing a video conference with them i've video conferenced in the age of coronavirus with lots of schools this year and it's but i've as you said before i've been doing this for a really long time so um it's great to connect with schools and use adventure as sort of that that thread of learning, but also it's a way to start a conversation about any subject. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was like back and forth whether I was going to ask you how COVID had been for it. Um, but that's good to hear that there's, you know, still interest and still of use. Um, cause you would hope that it is, you know, now when we have to do some of this distance learning, you think it's almost more, uh, opportune. Yeah. But you know, as you know, the educational system is jacked right now. Yeah. I mean, everybody, teachers are, there's just so many avenues to go down of how there's a struggle right now sure. for students, for teachers, for everybody, school boards. So, um, yeah, I mean, that opportunity is there. It always is. And, and schools have been participating. I mean, we had a couple of youth expeditions this year that we had one in, in June that got postponed and then was canceled. And then we had one in September that changed locations in order to sort of abide by COVID rules and then was eventually canceled. And so those projects, the on the ground stuff, we're really excited to start with again, hopefully in late 21. Yeah. Yeah. It's so like, you, you know, the why we do anything is important, right? So whether it's kids in school or you change, you know, stopping smoking, Um, you know, someone deciding to start running or start exercising, eating better, you know, that why or that, you know, the moment, the thing that changes it um, is, is, is important, right? And it's how you get someone to that precipice or, you know, where they start running downhill. Um, So actually, we talked about this before we we got on the phone with you, but we actually really wanted to hear about, you know, two pack a day smoker to crossing the Sahara. There's, there's obviously like a middle part to that story. Um, how did that yeah. transformation happen? Well, or yeah, maybe even first steps was sort of where yeah. I was going with that is like, what were like, did something happen? And I know this is it probably, or it is in your book, uh, running for my life for sure. But can you give us like, what, like what was that precipice for you that you, I'm sure you try and communicate to the kids and the, the students? Well, you know, both, both of you, great questions. And you know, the, the, the reality is, it was just a resolution. It was a resolution in my mind that I was just no longer happy uh, living the life that I was living at the time. And this was like late 90s. And my brother, I have a younger brother, John, who's an amazing athlete. And he was doing all of these sports that at that time, remember, it was late 90s, right? So there's no social media, right? The sports, the main sports that we knew were like football, hockey, the usual stuff. Endurance sports that we were really sort of from a mainstream perspective really connected to would be Ironman because it was on NBC or the Tour de France, which would come around, or Olympics. But really it wasn't as mainstream. If somebody came over to your house and knocked on your door and said, hey, you want to go rock climbing? You'd be like, what? You know? So uh, to see him doing all of these sports, mountain biking, rock climbing, paddling, he he did all of that stuff. And the more he got into these sports, the more confidence he took from it, the more of an identification he took from it of who he was. It was developing him who he was. And I was I was very enamored and inspired by that. And so I thought to myself, wow, I'm in such a bad space right now. 
I wonder if I did the things he did, if my life would be different. Like maybe, you know, and it could have been, he could have been anything. You know, I've joked that he could have been an electrician and this would be a home reno podcast, yeah. right? I mean, it, it just happened to be that he was an endurance athlete. So lo and behold, it, it, it took me three years to quit smoking, which was the hardest thing I ever did. Harder than running across the Sahara or any of the other projects I've ever done. It was literally the hardest thing I've ever done. Side, side story. I, you know, I'm lucky I get to speak all over the world in a non-pandemic world i speak all over the world and i always have people that'll come up to me in audiences after and they'll say yeah you told that part of your story you know when you took you three years to quit smoking to finally commit to doing the things that that uh your brother does they say i you know i was a smoker but i quit in a day i said well i'll tell you something that's awesome that happens it happens a lot so that's i said it's awesome but truly the most difficult things that we'll do in our life and the most challenging things that we'll face are very relative to us as individuals. And it's a reminder when we go through these periods in our life that we can't compare our experience with anyone else, that we have to live our own experience. And we live in a time when everything is instant gratification. There's a quote for everything. There's a theory for everything. And it, that's not the way life goes. Uh, that's really often. good. I hadn't. Like, I know, like that. That's really good. Yeah, you just you just have to live your own reality and then make things happen in the way that you hopefully can make them happen. Now, the flip side of that is that I do believe that every person is capable in their own version of extraordinary to making amazing things happen in their life. Extraordinary things happen in their life, and so the great things that you achieve in your life. We were talking about this earlier. Are relative to you as an individual. So you run 80K in Killarney, that's epic. That is, that is, could be the most epic thing you've ever done. On that day, you are so beat down, you think to yourself, oh my God, I can't believe I did this. Whatever that feeling was that you have is the same feeling I have crossing the Arctic in the middle of winter or crossing the Gobi Desert in the middle of summer. You know, it's that same feeling on the other side, right? So, that three years that I spent, that eventually I committed to and followed my brother into the outdoors, he sort of started introducing me to different sports, which I remember very clearly not being able to hike up a hill be without being winded. I can remember the first time going ice climbing with him, which became my winter sport became ice climbing. My summer sport became mountain biking. And I can remember the developmental stages, too, of like forgetting because I was 30 by then, right? 31. Forgetting what it felt like to be healthy. Because I forgot. I lost track of that somewhere in my teens. And I was eating fast food all the time. I was smoking cigarettes. I was drinking way too much and all the other things that go with it. And, you know, lo and behold, at 31 years of age, I'm pursuing a healthy lifestyle. And my life changes 180 degrees. And I'm like, wait a sec, I'm not winded anymore. I can't believe how great I feel, right? And it was like very enlightening. And that that kept, it was like a snowball. It just kept changing things in a more positive trajectory instead of a negative trajectory. So I started racing mountain bikes all over the world and then um, adventure racing with my brother and stuff like that. And then one thing led to another and I read an article in a magazine about an ultra marathon. And my brother is an avid trail runner. I was not a runner. I ran probably half a dozen times between 2000 and 2004 uh, or late 2003 just to be in good shape for, 
these adventure races that we were doing. But I read this article about ultra marathons and I thought, wow, how is it that these people can do these things that they do? This is ridiculous. Like they must be superhuman. And what I realized in reading this article and researching the race, the, the article was about in particular, it's called the Yukon Arctic Ultra. I saw photos of people that were very normal and regular looking. And I thought, well, that's <laughs> what the hell's that all about? And I knew that it was something more than the physical, that there was a mental component to running. And it was something that I had not yet learned or appreciated perhaps, but that through running, people were learning things about themselves that otherwise maybe they, they wouldn't have in their own lives. Other people would learn things in other ways, right? Struggling artist, musician, but learns things through their craft, right? Well, these people were learning something, something through running. So I thought, well, I want to know what it is that they know. So I entered that first race. And without taking up all of our time on the podcast, I almost didn't finish it a number of times. But I did end up finishing. It was my very first organized running race. It was 100 miles, 160 kilometers. In the Yukon in February, dragging all of my supplies with me, and I and I not only did I finish it, I won it, and it was the first thing that was endurance based that I'd ever won in my life. That was really sports based like that, you know, that required so much physical effort. I could not believe. I actually thought I must have made a mistake, and went down the course the wrong way, which was physically impossible because you're following a river. But you know, I it it. it it just I could not fathom that I could win something or be number one. Like I, there was a complete disconnect between that feeling. And but but I did. I, I had done it. And when I finally absorbed it, I realized that I didn't know how I did it. And I also didn't know how I could go from feeling so horrible and trashed halfway through the race. But by the end of the race, feel so invincible. And so there's all this multitude of things going on from that one race and that race, the search for answers after that race of how I was able to do this thing led me to multiple doing races all over the world. And I always picked it uh, ultra marathons that were the adventure type ones that involved carrying a backpack or extreme cold or extreme heat or jungle or whatever. And that that eventually led me to meeting the two guys through running that I would run across the Sahara with. And then eventually we would run across the whole Sahara, which was, Molly's question. <laughs> so <laughs> to wrap it up, <laughs> I, lo I love it. Full circle. I, yeah. Actually, I have a kind of second follow-up question to this. As you were talking about uh, changing the habits from being the two-pack-a-day smoker, how was that with the, with the people? I mean, you were lucky you had your brother in sport to kind of you know guide you through it and be like a buddy to you during that. But I mean, did you have to kind of shift your friend group, or what did that look like? Oh yeah, for sure. But I've done that in my life in different times you know um your friends are a reflection of who you are right and it's great to have diversity you know among like all your friends are completely different you can't all be the same that would be boring you know but basic value sets right like the things that are important to you and in life and that that kind of thing are more or less going to be in you're going to see that in your friends too right it just kind of works out that way even in in the dynamic of the people that you're hanging out with it just just kind of works out that way so yeah for sure the partying lifestyle I mean, you know when i left it behind it, it wasn't like a judgy thing oh i'm not going to be your friend anymore because you're still drinking a bottle of jack daniels every night it wasn't like that it was just i was doing different things and you grow distant with people 
you know, Mm -hmm. and then the next thing you know, you've kind of moved on. Yeah. And I'm still in touch with people from my past, but for the most part, you know, um, there's phases that you go through, right? There was a phase, you know, even 15 years ago, I, you know, I was dedicated weekends. I looked forward to my Sunday runs with my buddies. Now I look forward to Sunday adventures with my family, you know, and I'd much prefer going running with my uh, wife and, and daughters than I would with the guys. No offense to the guys. You know, I, there's always time for that and there will be after COVID, but it's more fun now. You know what I mean? So you're always in a transitionary phase in life. The minute you stop and you get stuck too much in similar patterns in life, that's when you start to age a little bit more, right? You Do you know? find, well, that's interesting that you say you age a bit more because I've seen this with clients too. They, we, I think we hold on to this past self, right? This, I used to run this fast or, um, you know, I, I'll never do that again or for better or worse. Yeah. Or, or different sports or, or like <laughs> I used to race world cup mountain bikes. I'll never do that again. Or, you know, something like that. Right. Like how do you, do you find that, do you have to mourn that past you know self? I, so I get interviewed tons of times. Like I love doing the podcast interviews and I'm just grateful that people are even interested in, you know, asking me questions, but nobody's ever actually asked me that question. I think it's a really great question because it's something that I have thought about for a really long time. And that is the fact that when I started this journey, I was not thinking, okay, well, won the Yukon Arctic Ultra. Now here's the plan. I'm going to go around the world. I'm going to win a bunch more races. Then I'm going to run across the Sahara. Matt Damon's going to make a movie out of it. And from there, I'm going to become a professional explorer. And from that point onward, I'm going to do this, 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 this. And eventually I'll reach 20,000 K. It's, it wasn't anything like that right? Everything I've ever pursued, I've pursued because in the moment, you know, life has presented, the universe has presented, right? That opportunity and that direction for me to go in. Of course, I have a list of places that I wanted to explore, but I wanted to also, um, in a very real and authentic way to myself, go about doing those things, not doing those things for the purpose of what it might yield me on the other end, but instead doing these things because I'm going to be on this planet for 75 years if I'm really healthy on average and lucky, right? And so I want to do these things and be able to someday look back and say, I'm so glad I did it. But at the same time, I don't rest on my laurels and I don't stare in the rearview mirror constantly. It's just never been something along this journey, maybe because I set out on the journey rather to learn about myself than for it to be something else than that. Maybe that's why, but an example is, you know, and I don't want this to sound in it. This is not supposed to be a narcissistic statement, but I have a Guinness world record. I have all these awards. I have all these magazine articles, these interviews, tons and tons of stuff. None of it is on walls in this house that we live in. All of it is on a filing cabinet or in the filing cabinet in our mudroom. Nothing that relates to what I do from an achievement perspective is hanging anywhere to be publicly visible because I don't want that to be the definition of who I am, right? Because if you rely on that, you become eventually that person down the road that you still yearn to be and you're not willing to accept who you've become. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We all get a bit older. I've always said, you know, it's like when you watch 
you know, hockey or, or baseball. And you have these superstars, right? They're just killing it. Like Usain Bolt, amazing. Checked out at the right time. You yeah. know, it's like a hockey player. They win the Stanley Cup twice. And they love hockey. But they find a different way to pursue that passion. They check out. Like, they're still playing hockey to this day. But do you know what I'm saying? Things have changed. Yeah. And so I don't want to ride it out until it's like I'm not doing things the way I love to do things and enjoy it. I like to constantly evolve. Because you, you really, you have, you have one life on the planet. And if you don't experience several evolutions in what it is that you are and do in that one life, well, then you look back, it's a stagnant line. Mm-hmm. You know? For someone who, who doesn't live on quotes, you have an awful lot of really good ones. <laughs> well, it's, it's just, it's just the, my brain is vomiting. <laughs> I know, I love well, it. I think that's good. I think the idea of looking forward in the process, like I think those are, are great thoughts, right? And um, I, I like your thought too about the, the awards on the wall, even for your daughters, right? I think that's like it would be easy to like live in the legend of right? If you just had like your medals and your, you know, different things up on the walls, right? Well, and I've turned them into, I already turned them into legends, right? And the, you know, I'm one of those dads that's always <laughs> bragging about their kids. But you know, and a good example, and I've used this example on many podcasts before of how this sort of applies in our house. Like my wife, Kathy does ultra marathons. And when we met, she was a runner for sure. She was running, you know, ha- uh, I think half, up to half marathon, 10 Ks, not a trail runner. So this was like the 2004, 2005 time period, not a trail runner, got into trail running reluctantly in the beginning and fast forward, never really sort of said, well, okay, I'll do this. And then I'll work up to that. She went like bounced from one distance to the hundred mile to the, doing these 200 mile races. Now she's done all the 200 mile races. And, and last one she did, she did the Moab 240, 240 mile running 240 miles nonstop and finish second at it. And, and she's not a professional ultra runner. You know, she's a consultant and works in environment and, you know, works full time, two jobs (laughs) and somebody has got to work around this place. (laughs) And so, you know, they, uh, but she's able to achieve that because she doesn't have in her mind, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. I can't do that. Right. Instead, you just, she's evolving in, in that thing that she loves to do and she runs it and that's that. Um, we would like to have her on the podcast next. <laughs> yeah, we should have Just her on. Her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let her know that, please. <laughs> yeah, we're sold. Um, so in line with that, you know, you mentioned even your, I think you had sort of like a three to five years till that hundred miler there, but what, what does training look like? Like some of the stuff you just can't prepare for an ultra marathon in, in the linear sense that you might prepare for like a marathon, a road marathon or something, right? Um, like what, what do you do? Like how do you, how are you surviving these things and not getting injured? You're doing one, of, at least one of these massive things a year. Like how are you yeah, still? Expedition year. So and, when I was and let's just give people context. You said you started at 30. You've been doing this for over 20 years. Are you, are you 50? 52. I'm going to okay. be 52 in February. Okay. And well, I'll start right there. So at 50, 51, uh, we live in Chelsea, Quebec in the same area. We've lived here 20 years and there's a trail where, I, it's one of the trails that I do. Well, let me, geez, there's so many things I could talk about. So I do, most of my training is based on elevation, elevation and not distance. So the max I've ever run while doing preparing for expeditions is 120 K a week. Sometimes hundred and I may do the odd 150, 160 K a week, but typically a 120 a week is my peak. Okay. And 
I train mainly based on elevation gain. So I need to get 1,000 to 1,200 feet every 10K. So I base my training programs around how much I'm climbing every day. So it's all technical terrain, very hilly where we live. If anybody knows the Gatineau Park, they, you know your listeners, they know what it's like here. So there's a route, there's a trail that I run that's sort of an up-tempo route that I run that's a 10K route, very crazy single track. There's some stream crossings and stuff, and it takes you to the top of this ski hill area called Camp Fortune. You guys as mountain bikers will know it. Like, it's really well known for mountain biking. And I am 10 minutes faster now at 50 than I was when I was racing and winning ultras at 35. And it's because my nutrition is dialed, super dialed. The older we get, the harder it is to recover. So super dialed on the nutrition even more. Um, My training is super specific. So I train now differently than I did when I was racing ultras. When I was racing ultras, I would say I followed more of a marathon style training program with a couple of extra long runs. So I was doing a lot of speed work. I was doing, you know, kind of track workouts, but on flat gravel roads that kind of stuff, 400, 600, 800s, 200s, you know, all that jazz. Now I do everything based on the trails. So if I was to go and do uh, one kilometer repeats right now, I definitely wouldn't be as fast, but I'm faster on that super technical trail tempo that's kind of my measuring stick. So why is that? Because I've become more adept in technical terrain and doing the things that I do. So without getting too long-winded and boring on this answer, if I was doing the things now that I was you know, if I was training the way I am now, I think for what I was doing then, I would be that much more, uh, you know, speedy in those older days of racing. But expeditions are so hard. It takes me one year to do one thing, train, everything's dialed, mental, physical, food, everything is focused on that one big project per year. I do typically do two projects, a smaller one and a big one. But the big one is the overriding goal. And it can take a year, but it can take up to four years of planning to pull that expedition off. Okay. So do you often have like four expeditions like in the planning works? Yeah. And are you like, is there, I would imagine there's different people because you have partners who are running with you and stuff as well. Like this is like, like what you can take us any way you want, but like, are you using like a a Google sheet or something? And you guys are like, So I, uh, my expeditions are one of two ways, completely unsupported, self-contained or unsupported solo or unsupported with someone else, meaning everything that we need to survive is in our sleds. That's typically the way I do Arctic or cold weather expeditions. So we're off the grid completely for however long it takes, 20 days, whatever. Right. Um, then I'm supported in expeditions. So most of the deserts, that all of the large deserts that I've crossed have been 50 degrees Celsius plus every single day, super gnarly terrain, intense navigation. You can only go so far and move so fast with a certain amount of weight on your back. So the, the sweet spot for me has been about 20 to 50 K between resupplies. And so I try to crank out anywhere between 60 and 80 K a day on average on these desert expeditions. I've done solo expeditions. I've done, um, expeditions with a teammate, um, in the desert, in the deserts, but that's sort of the lay of the land on how the two of those work in, in the, in the preparation phase of an expedition, whether it's a desert or a cold weather expedition in the mapping of those expeditions and the planning and the logistics, it all depends on the style of the expedition. If it's unsupported, 
winter expedition, your life is in a sled. You just got to get that stuff to the destination. And then everything after that becomes more complicated from a communications perspective and a safety perspective. Hmm. In the desert expeditions, now you're talking about, well, I got to have support, right? At some point, I'm going to run into a four-wheel drive. Like I'm crossing mountains and, and river, uh, you know, dry river valleys and salt flats and sand dunes. And eventually in 20 or 30 kilometers, if my navigation is correct, I'm going to find that four-wheel drive with that resupply. May as well bring a film, a filmmaker and a photographer to double as crew. And they can get stories from places that I'm nowhere near because they've got a four-wheel drive, right? Right. And they can go to communities that might be remote desert communities and visit and learn about the people and the cultures there. And then I'm doing my run. So I, you know what I mean? We can multitask more. That Which strikes planning. me. Yeah, like that's planning. the what you're talking about there. Like that's almost like what's missing. I, th- I find a lot of times with people who are trying to make a go as an adventurer, as you know, uh, uh, what, do we, what do we call these people now? Explorer. Explorer. But yeah, there, more and more people are trying to do this, right? There's less, you know, people are going away from racing. Pandemic will probably push this more. But that's all, like how we're telling the story. Where's the, you know, community benefit? Where's the, you got to tell someone about it, right? Yeah. So I think that uh, I was fortunate that I started, and it's serendipity. You know, serendipity plays a huge role. You know, when we did the Running the Sahara Expedition, we finished that in 2007. That was a really well-known documentary. So that was kind of out there. It was like one of the earliest really big running documentaries or adventure documentaries like that, right? So that was a good foothold for me in getting started. And then from that point, Expeditions that I would do after that had various components of communication. I've always connected my expeditions with classrooms, no matter what, and brought classrooms onto expeditions with me using technology. It's always been my mandate. It's very expensive to do that. So it's a barrier to entry for people uh, to do that. But I think also, you know, when we went to the South Pole, uh, in 2009, that became like this crazy international <laughs> news story, you know, and I knew at the time, like I was saying before about the filing cabinet and everything else, you know, not looking back too much. I remembered, you know, all of the the, the talk shows and the, you know, the media coverage. And I'd had a lot of, I, you know, I used to do a lot of live hits to the various news broadcasters before there was social media. We'd use my satellite device. I do live hits. But when that expedition was over, the craziness of how much interest was in that South Pole expedition, I remember thinking to myself, things and the way we communicate will change. And it's not always going to be like this, you right. know? And things have changed. Yeah, you'd make and a bet on it. And now it's all about um, social media, for good or bad. I mean, it, it, the, the good of it is, is it's so much easier to communicate and get a message yeah. uh, out in the world. The, the other side of it is, is that you want to keep your message as authentic and unique to you as you can. Um, but there's a lot of noise out there, you right. know. And so for sure, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's not a um, you do these things because you have to be truly passionate about it. If you have like these this idea that, well, I. I want to do this so that I can benefit from it. And also, by the way, I'm very passionate about it. It's the wrong right. order. Yeah. It's just not good karma. Okay. I know you have to get to paddling lessons. So if you can, I, I had two questions that should be relatively quick, like tips almost. 
I know you've done a ton in the very cold conditions, both on a fat bike, running, walking, you know, pulling stuff. Eating is always like a big thing and drinking. Do you have a tip or like a piece of gear that just like makes, you know, someone's going to fat bike or run in the cold this year that well, makes it? Adapt, well, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a million things, but for, for your, for, if you're going away and you're going to do a week long thing or something and in the cold, adapting your body to a higher fat diet for the cold is super good idea. Cause you're much more, when you're metabolizing fat, you, you know, you're using more energy and you're also carrying less weight calories per gram. Mm -hmm. And so you become very efficient at creating heat and keeping yourself warm. Um, as far as tips go, I mean, it totally depends on what the person's doing, but I got to tell you, the thing is warm hands and warm feet equals warm body. So if you're going out in the cold and you're going to find yourself for a long time in the cold, you know, the hand warmers, the shaky hand warmers, I yeah. always have a couple of extra pairs really? of those. Always. Okay. Absolutely. I would not um, have thought that would be the thing you would suggest. I, yeah, for sure. It just, there, it's okay. just a standby. It's one of those things that bang for the buck and making you feel better when you think you might implode, they can do it. Okay. Uh, and then if people want to connect with you for guiding for coffee now as well, that's at capic1.com. Yeah, that's at capic1.com. And just follow, go to my website, raiseahab.com or yep. go on my social media and you'll eventually find links to everything else. Awesome. awesome. We'll, we'll include those in the show notes and we're going to have to have you back on to keep talking about, maybe, we have so many about like well, nutrition and heat and I'm cold. Sure, yeah. I'm sure everyone will have questions for you too around that. So maybe we can have like more of a quick hit uh, Q and a type thing too. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, for awesome. sure. Because I mean, there's so much. Um, and, and I think with, with if there's one thing that, that I've taken in helping others that are like, from an endurance perspective, from, from the things that I've done, I used to coach a number of clients over the years and, and what I've learned in this time of doing expeditions is how unique each of us are physically as individuals. I mean, but, but there's sort of this, there's sort of this, there's similarities in things that go wrong with people. Like I've had so many ultra athletes over the years who will say to me, oh, but it doesn't matter what I do. I just, I, I don't get it. But my stomach is just constantly, I feel horrible at the 50 mile mark in any one of these races. I just don't know what to do. I've tried everything. And I asked them, I said, okay, well, explain to me how you eat during the day on a normal day to day. Okay. And then what are you eating during a race? Well, all they're consuming during the race is sugar from one end to the other, but they don't live on donuts and, and right. cake during the day. You know, they eat broccoli during the day, you know, at work. So, you know, it, there's a disconnect. So there's usually solutions that I have found for all this stuff, you know, from that I've done and also from the, the, the multitude of people that I've communicated with over the years. So if we did a Q&A, it'd be really cool. I'm sure a lot of stuff would come to mind. That's yeah, awesome. That'd be super fun. All right. We'll have to schedule that soon. But for now, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for doing Thanks, this. Guys. This is so much fun. Yes. Thank you so much. And Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests. And yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs um, at consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram. Uh, and I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week.
Dear Cycling Friends, we accept the fact that we have created the premier gravel and road racing podcast. And we don't think you're crazy to ask us who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a hobby blogger, a gravel pro, and a curious newbie. And you can find us on the Wide Angle Podium Network. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, the Grodio Podcast.